Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. On today's episode, I wanted to circle back on the topic that I talked about a little bit two weeks ago, which was the sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and just how that impacted the world of technology. And I talked a little bit about what led to the collapse as well as the part and the role that SVB played in my career. Not that is as epic or important as what has happened in the last few weeks, but it just is very interesting how reoccurring themes come up. And on that episode, I talked a bit about some of the fraud that I would expect to see and kind of some predictions around the type of fraud to look out for. But Now that it's been about two weeks, we have more insights into the types of fraud that occurred because of the sudden collapse of SVB. And we knew that fraud would happen because fraud always happens during chaotic times, especially when they have to do with finance or economic times or anything. We saw just how much fraud exploded during COVID because of other things. And so anytime there's a shift in what David Maiman would call the ecosystem, then the cybercrime ecosystem will adjust. And we know that they love to take advantage of chaotic times and drastic changes in the market. And while I think it's important to know about these in case your company is still getting hit with these or you know, to be on the lookout or to advise your accounts payable team on or whatever may happen right now to get ahead of it and be aware of it, I think it's also important to learn from this. I mean, there hasn't been another major bank collapse in the U.S. since the collapse of Washington Mutual, which was back in 2008. Side note, it was so interesting to me how that actually came up in my conversation with Laura Mather on this last Tuesday's episode, as she told the story of how she found Silvertail Systems, which was one of the first anti-fraud technology, like third-party platforms for online businesses that was founded in 2008 and you know how it was just crazy to me that the first day that she got all the paperwork and the funding for Silvertail was the last day of Washington Mutual and how that impacted her business as well as just how interesting it is that history repeats itself especially if lessons aren't learned especially if governance isn't put in place to prevent history from repeating itself it often will uh not just in the banking system and in history overall but we see that in cybercrime oftentimes a lot of the tactics being used now are variations of tactics that were used five or ten years ago or 20 years ago same on the prevention side as laura and i talked about on tuesday being able to build off of worked before and make it even better with new technical capabilities. So it's good to learn from these types of instances so that when and if, I mean, hopefully if, but probably when something like this happens again, then we as an industry are aware of what to be on the lookout for and what will be coming 
depending on the type of company you work for and everything else. So that's why I'm going to dive into what has happened. There's been some great reporting that I will pull from, as well as some tidbits that I've learned from some of you that have been helpful to know what's going on in the landscape within fraud. It's no secret that my main experience is on the e-commerce and marketplace side, but I do have a lot of great listeners that listen to the podcast on the banking side and in fintech and financial institutions. So I am grateful that I can ping a few of you and ask uh, what you're seeing as well and help share that with the masses too. So before diving into talking about Silicon Valley, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the last few episodes of the podcast. I am very proud of them, especially the last month. I feel like I've had some amazing guests and I always have great guests. But from Robert Kerbeck, who was a corporate spy and shared some really good wisdom and great tips on helping your company prevent social engineering attacks. Some of the advice he provided were things that I haven't heard other experts share, but that make perfect sense and that should be deployed very quickly. And I think it's just, he was fascinating to learn from. And I think he would be a great person to bring in uh, to your companies to learn more and to teach other departments, especially customer service, as well as executives and accounts payable teams about social engineering and how easy it is. This is a side note too, but I have chronic pain. I think I've shared that before. And I have a doctor that I see fairly regularly and she's a fairly new doctor to me just because we moved across the state last year. And I don't know, a few months ago, she asked me what I did and I told her, and then I think they said something about the podcast. And so she asked about it. And whenever anyone in my life asks me about the podcast, I say, oh, don't worry. It's really nerdy. It's specialized in my industry. I never expect anyone in my regular life, like not even my husband, to listen to the podcast. But bless her heart, my doctor has really gotten into listening to fraudology. And it is so interesting to me. And when I was in last week, she was telling me how fascinated she was by Robert Kerbeck and how she came in and told some of the other people she worked with that you can't always believe who people are on the other side of the phone and just how he would pretend to be different people and he'd never fully say it, but he'd let them think that he was. It was just really fascinating to hear someone who isn't in the industry and what their takeaways were from that. She also heard the the hangry and sleep deprived episode from MRC and said it sounded like I had a good time in Vegas, which I did. So it's just really funny. It's pretty funny to have a podcast, especially a very niche one, and have your doctor in your regular life be a listener. But I very much appreciate it. And I it's so funny. Sometimes we both have to be reminded to stay on task because I'm not there to talk about podcast or online fraud, but it's easy for me to do. <laughs> but after Robert Kerbeck, then having David Maiman, who I've learned a lot on LinkedIn, but I learned so much from him in those two episodes. And I know a lot of you did too. At least one of you commented on his passion and just how noticeable it was on the episode. And I couldn't agree more. And I just felt like I echoed that passion. And I just love learning about other people's perspectives on very similar things going on. But we all have different perspectives and different ways of thinking about it, whether we're thinking about it from the side of what is being done and what the tactics and the different vectors are, as well as if we're thinking about it from a prevention side and a fraud strategy side. It's just 
it's fascinating to me. And I'm so glad it's fascinating to so many of you too. And then talking to Laura Mather this week was just so fun to me as well. She's somebody I have known of, but haven't really known in person. Just because of the trajectories of our careers, they weren't fully aligned. And I just really learned a lot from her. And I know several people really enjoyed hearing how far we've come because it's really easy to get discouraged when we think about how much further we have to go when it comes to detecting and identifying all different types of fraud. And it can be really discouraging, especially as you're trying to push different priorities through your company and it can take months. And meanwhile, you're seeing these numbers go up and you're, you know what that impact means and all of that. But it can also be really heartening to and encouraging to go back and think, okay, I've come a really long way. Whether you're going as far back as Laura or I'm going as far back in my career, which only started three years after her in cybercrime, but feels like a lifetime with the different issues we were dealing with because of the things she and her peers put in place so quickly in those early days of the internet and the early aughts, as they say. But even if you're thinking about it, you know, from when you started in your current role, sometimes it's helpful to go back and think, okay, how much have we done since then? Where were we at then? What were all of the pieces I had to put together and that we all had to do and data we had to understand to be able to identify a solution and go forward, et cetera. I find that in my personal life too. I used to call that thinking backwards where I would get frustrated with where I wanted to go, but then I would think about how far I had come since a specific time in my life. And that would encourage me to go, okay, you know what? Life isn't moving as slow as I think. And it isn't all bad. And hopefully in five more years, I'll look back now and think, wow, I came a long way. So there is there's a joke going around with some people that sometimes I provide 20 minute tangents. I'd just like to say for the record that this was an eight minute tangent and I hope that you learned something. But I really just like to reflect back on the past episodes too, because I feel like we learned so much. And sometimes I'm so focused on getting two episodes out every week which might sound easier than it is, but I also thoroughly enjoy it. Don't get me wrong there. But I don't always think back about, wow, how much have we learned? Or how lucky are we to get to learn from so many awesome humans? And we have a lot of other amazing people coming up on Fraudology soon that I'm really excited for you all to listen to too. Like I said today, I wanted to circle back on Talking about SVB and just some of the fallout of the collapse and not necessarily the way that economic professors will look at it or finance people will look at the collapse, but how we look at things, where things that are impacting the environment and the ecosystem that can encourage and really create opportunities for fraud. And that I compiled some stuff around from the last two and a half weeks since the collapse and wanted to share it with you as well as some of my thoughts. A lot happened quickly. I think the fastest thing was that hundreds of startups and VCs moved their funds to other banks. There was actually one report that I read from SoCure, which I'll be reading a little bit more from in a minute, that said that as many of customers were panicking, kind of when there were signs of a collapse and CB had to come out and say that they had lost billions of dollars in assets and that they were, they tried to go for sit on sale really fast or tried to be bought very quickly. On the first day that it was announced that SVB was having financial issues, which was March 9th of this year, so just a couple weeks ago, SVB stock crashed by 60%. And when the customers panicked, 
I think this happened right around the same time. So stock was crashing by 60% and customers pulled out $42 billion on March 9th alone. So I don't know which was the chicken and which was the egg as far as stock crashing and $42 billion being taken out. But that is so much money to take out of bank accounts all in one day. And that led to the crash. And that led to the U.S. FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, taking over management of SVB temporarily. Since then, several regional banks could get a credit rating downgrade. And so that's causing even more cracks in the system. And even more people are fleeing regional banks and smaller banks that are worried that the same thing could happen to their bank. But one of the things I wanted to point out is as those hundreds of startups and VCs were moving their funds to other banks, 42 million billion in just the first day alone, there's been a little bit of analysis on where those accounts have been opened. And I found this online. I Starting over from I found this, I don't want to have that I found this online part, so I'll just start here. I found a really interesting infographic that was posted on LinkedIn by Cruise Consulting, K-R-U-Z-E, consulting.com. And they said that 50% of all bank accounts that were opened after SVB were opened at J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. Oh, and this actually was, I apologize, this is just from Cruise clients that opened new accounts at other financial institutions that could have a difference just because they may be advising them on where to go. But it's still an interesting snapshot. So it shows which banking options that their clients chose and the percentage that opened accounts at each institution. So 50% opened them at J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. 20% opened them at the fintech called Mercury, which is a B2B fintech. Another 9% at Brex, B-R-E-X, which I want to say Brex got their start in opening corporate cards for various startups and fintechs and then has branched out into providing other financial services. 6% opened up accounts at First Republic Bank. 2% at Morgan Stanley, 3% at Bank of America. I don't know why those are in that order. It should be 3%. Anyway, so 3% at Bank of America, 2% at Morgan Stanley, 2% at Wells Fargo, and 8% were scattered at different banks. So I do know from speaking to several of you that if your fintech or financial institution provides business bank accounts, you've been very busy, especially in the underwriting sector of having new accounts. And that's not super common to have so many accounts be trying to be opened all at once. And obviously, cyber criminals are trying to take advantage of that volume and slip in to look. And in talking with a lot of you, most of them have been legitimate. But in B2B KYCs, as far as know your customer policies, can be time consuming and challenging even more than consumer KYCs. And while consumer bank accounts are open quite often, it's super common for there to be one big impetus where a lot of business bank accounts are open all at once. And so I know that has caused late nights and a lot of work for some of you. But of course, within two to three days of this happening, within two to three days of March 9th, I guess I should say, I know a lot of banks and fintech started seeing an increase in fraudulent applications. Like I said, they want to hide in the chaos. They always want to look legitimate. It's easier to hide within high volumes and high net worth accounts than it is just to open a business bank account when there's maybe, I don't know, depending on the size of the bank, 10 or 100 business applications a day. And now all of a sudden you have hundreds or thousands. That's a huge difference. So there's no doubt that the confusion caused by these market events 
are something that fraudsters and transnational criminal organizations will and are using as an opportunity. So pulling from another blog article that SoCure published in March 27, I found these really fascinating and they were using a lot of their own internal metrics to provide a view into what is being seen right now. And sometimes that's the most helpful information during these spikes while this activity is happening. Obviously, there I'm sure there will be reports done after the fact, months or even a year afterwards, which will still provide good learning opportunities. But it's really helpful in the moment to look at real-time data to say what is happening. Here's what we thought was going to happen. Here's what is happening. The so reading from this blog, in the weeks since the fall of SVB and subsequent turmoil at Signature Bank, we've conducted analysis of fraud patterns across our 1,500 plus customers, inclusive of the largest banks and fintechs in the market. We've seen a spike in third-party and synthetic identity fraud attempts for small business banking and investment platforms. Attackers are looking to hide among a rapid and massive increase in application volume as consumers and businesses race to establish new accounts. We don't believe these attacks will slow down until banking uncertainty subsides and small business banking and investment platforms need to remain vigilant. So here's some of what they found in their findings, and it depended on the type of service or which one of the products the customers used through SoCure, and they shared that throughout the article. But one analysis that they conducted is an attack rate, depending on scores in a couple of their products. So they use that as a proxy to measure how much their customers are being attacked by bad actors performing either third-party fraud identity theft or synthetic identity fraud at the point of origination of a new account. The attack rate does not reflect successfully opened fraudulent accounts, and in fact, their, what they call their Sigma scores, tend to capture and stop 80% or more of incoming fraudulent applications. Obviously, it's their block. They need to say that. Attack rate analysis is a great way to understand how bad actors are behaving and where they believe the, the vulnerabilities and opportunities are. So they're talking about where they were monitoring new account openings for their customers real time. And they shared, while there were some normal patterns of increases and decreases of synthetic and third-party identity fraud attack rates, across all the industries that they look at. We believe that the investment and small business banking industries were directly impacted the most by the SVB and major bank failures. In these two industries, we noticed increased behaviors starting on the Wednesday preceding the Friday, March 10th. So that would be on March 8th. Oh, so actually in this case, they saw the behaviors starting a day before March 9th. I think some of the banks that I talked to they may have started to see that spike over the weekend, but sometimes because there can be a couple days lag for a business account to be approved, that could also be why. And we noticed increased attack behavior starting on the Wednesday preceding the Friday, March 10th closure of SVB by regulators, suggesting that bad actors monitor news feeds and are prepared to take advantage of new opportunities immediately. I don't know if that's necessarily a news flash for anyone, but it is validation of everything we know already. Cyber criminals watch the news, always looking for an opportunity to strike and take advantage of a situation. So they used a high, very risky score cutoff of 0.99. So they were being fairly conservative where they were just looking at that 1% of the highest 1% of fraud, basically, thing that scored in that top 1%. And they tracked the rate of applications that scored at or above that level a few days before the SVB news was released broadly on March 10th and continued to monitor and report on any anomalous patterns we, they believe were likely tied to risky rising banking concerns. 
Data shows an increase of 498% between March 7th and March 11th, with attack rates slowing over the course of the following week. So attack rates have already slowed down this week already, which is, you know, why I say it's also good to know this just for historic purposes. Should another large banking closure happen or something similar, we know where to look. We know which vulnerabilities will be attacked first. So with an increase of almost 500% between March 7th and March 11th, where just on new account fraud. On March 15th, the attack rate was back to normal, and we've seen normal attack rates since that decline. The third-party fraud attacks were driven by bad actors who had been testing the system across our customer base for weeks and immediately scaled up their operations upon the SVB news, using bots to create accounts every four minutes. So... As we know, there are often cyber criminals all over your site, whether it's online banking, e-commerce platform, marketplace platform, fintech, et cetera. And as soon as they see an opportunity to hide in the chaos, they will. And in this case, they were using bots to create accounts every four minutes. Fortunately, with a lot of technology these days, bots can be detected, but they're not foolproof. Bots are getting smarter every day. Scripted attacks are getting smarter every day. And we know from Past episodes of the podcast, especially around the master manipulators group that retailers saw during the holiday season, that what we used to call human bot farms are actually an often human trafficking enterprises where they train people, essentially replicate a bot and just go through patterns and clicks and things like that, but at a slower pace, knowing that timing is one of the measures that companies can used to identify bot behavior. And then synthetic identity fraud began to climb on the day of the SVB closure from an attack rate of 0.57 to an initial peak of 1.24%. So from half of a percentage point or 57 bips to 1.24% on the Sunday following the closure or an increase of 80%. It appears third-party fraud attacks have subsided for the uh, for the time, synthetic identity fraud attack rates continue to rise and have peaked again even higher on March 21st to 1.35%, with slow increase in attack rates still continuing. So while third-party and identity theft account openings for banks and financial institutions for businesses and consumers have gone down, they really went up very quickly over four days and then went down again, synthetic ID Fraud is definitely still alive and well. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, 
maybe, without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score, or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models, and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. Remember, if you listened to my episode with David Myman on last Thursday, he talked about how there are just so many synthetic IDs, both consumer IDs as well as synthetic businesses that are being created or impersonated and that are being aged. And so he sees that all the time in the criminal world. I do too, but I don't live there as much as he does. And I do not have the access that his entire department has, Georgia State University. And so I would never pretend to know all of that, but I do know that there is a whole business in just creating and making up humans and making them and making them look normal and making them look like they've been around for a long time. And then once an opportunity like this pops up, you can all of a sudden start using them and they have a history of being on credit lines or being having a credit report or different social security number, all those things that are needed in the U.S. to duplicate looking like a human or an actual business. So beyond monitoring attack rates for new accounts, they also have the ability to gain some understanding of efforts to change non-monetary data for customers who use their risk scores to measure the riskiness of PSO, personal identifiable information changes to the account. So can't remember if that's something I mentioned on the episode about SVB two weeks ago or not, but another concern was definitely that cyber criminals could have enough information to access business accounts to add new contacts onto the account or add a new email address or phone number that could then help them call in or request assistance to change a bank account number to their own or something like that. So they're looking at those types of things. They're not monetary changes, but they certainly are changes that can indicate that a monetary attack on those accounts are going to happen. So it's always good to, when you have ability to track those non-monetary changes on accounts, it's very helpful because sometimes it's completely normal. And I do know that this has been top of mind for a lot of legitimate businesses. So some businesses are just thinking, oh, we don't have our newest accounts receivable person or our newest controller on our banking documents as someone who's authorized to make changes. So we need to do that. So it's legitimately happening. Therefore, it's happening a lot fraudulently as well. So they go on to say that bad actors will change contact elements such as phone number, physical address, and email address when they are trying to take over an account. While we considered there may be increased account takeover attempts in banking, the data suggests that bad actors are not increasing their efforts 
to take over accounts during this turmoil in the banking industry. It didn't surprise me that there isn't full account takeover happening, but the changing of account information is still happening at a higher than normal. Oh, that's exactly what they go on to say. So there has been an increase in account changes. However, we believe those are being made primarily by legitimate consumers who are likely updating their account information because their bank accounts are more top of mind at the moment. However, those non-monetary changes can indicate fraud coming up. So that's good that they were monitoring that. So the bottom line of this article is that bad actors strike during the most turbulent of times. As businesses race to establish new accounts in the wake of SVB and Signature Bank failures and wider market uncertainty, fraudsters aim to mask their attacks amid unusual shifts in onboarding patterns. In the attacks, we spotted a flood of the same U.S. phone number used from China, linked to hundreds of applications with stolen identities. My guess would be those were linked to the bot accounts that were taken that were set up every four minutes. It's purely a guess and a speculation. When that number was blocked, the attackers changed it up to create a new VoIP, voice over IP phone, for each application. Banks and fintechs providing small business and or investment accounts must practice vigilance during this time of uncertainty. So couldn't agree more with that. And I appreciated that Sokir shared those just from their own perspective, because it does provide validation for the people who are seeing these fraud attacks, as well as helps other people understand what's happening, right? Heaven forbid there's another major bank collapse. We'll know that third-party fraud will attack very quickly. We'll know that synthetic fraud will grow over time, but will last for much longer, for a couple of weeks at least. And that while account takeover isn't super likely, it is something to keep an eye on. That's what I took out of that. And obviously that bots another Cyber criminal groups will try to take advantage, at least lowest hanging fruit. Obviously, we know that most groups that deploy scripted attacks are really going for quantity over quality. So they know that a lot of them will be stopped. But even a couple of new accounts that can slip through the cracks and be opened on banking systems, especially, can definitely be monetized and weaponized to steal a lot of money. So there were other types of fraud that came up because of these bank failures as well that I wanted to make sure that I covered. There was another article by payments.com. So that's P-Y-M-T-S. So payments without any vowels, uh, com. They, they primarily do focus on payment acceptance, payment processing news, but do have some fraud related articles. And this one was titled Rise of SVB Driven Fraud Shows How Fast Criminals Move. And I thought, again, these things would be fascinating to you as well as this one specifically, I think almost any business should be aware of. This is one that I talked about two weeks ago, but it's still happening now. There was definitely a flood of emails I got on the Monday following the SVB collapse, where a lot of the vendors that or the companies of my clients who consider me a vendor sent emails or instructions on how to change bank account information if you were changing your bank account from SVB to something else. But a lot of fraudsters tried to take advantage of that too. This article starts in a way that we know all too well. For criminals, big news creates big opportunities. And businesses beware. The recent collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank offer cyber criminals a perfect cocktail of urgency, uncertainty, and money movement, creating an irresistible golden opportunity for scammers and fraudsters to exploit. The phishing attacks have been through the roof. David Tabaknik, I apologize. I know I have a unique first name. David Tabaknik 
chief financial officer at Hunger Rush told payments in a recent conversation. So many people are calling our AP, our accounts payable department, saying, here's my new account number. Transfer funds here. So the company had already performed an assessment of all vendors using SVB via their routing numbers. I believe that's something you can access in your account payable systems. So looking up the routing number for SVB, sorting through all of the vendor accounts that you pay out on a regular basis and identifying which ones are SVB, that's something that you know, ideally would have been good to do two weeks ago. But if that's something your accounts payable department hasn't done yet, certainly I'd recommend it because then they'll know exactly which companies will be calling to change that information. And if a company calls to say they're changing their banking information from SBB to something else and they weren't on that list, it gives you some cause for pause and it may be someone impersonating that. Company. This was to assess their situation as it related to vendors receiving SV, you know, funds at SVB. So instead, the calls and emails were coming from cyber criminals looking to capitalize on the ensuing confusion caused by the banking crisis to take advantage of the need for businesses to move their operational accounts and deposits to banks while capitalizing on the fear-driven climate of a present moment with traditional behavioral-driven fraud tactics. You'd be shocked at how many people are trying to just scam off this situation, Tabanek said. They also talked about how fraud moves fast. The current situation shows how rapidly it's possible for fraudsters to move and take advantage of any shift or crack in the landscape, particularly when their potential victims are distracted and less alert. Really drives home the ecosystem comparison that David Maiman said last Tuesday. I really think it's brilliant. I'm going to use it a lot. It's similar to my zombies and, and dragon analogy, but can go so much broader and you can use it in other ways than just talking about how we should be responding to them and how we should be really thinking about them in the mindset of fraud prevention. So article goes on to say the banking crisis has put a fine point on enterprise risk with the next generation of cyber criminals constantly probing for operational vulnerabilities and looking to exploit weaknesses. It's becoming increasingly critical for businesses to adequately equip their defenses and employees by considering all possible attack vectors particularly because so many software vendors are critical to the digital economy and that they banked with SVB, invoice verification post-collapse has only become more important as skimming, phishing, and business email compromise attacks increase from bad actors impersonating both SVB customers and SVB officials. So take extra time to verify information whenever anyone calls or emails to you. Do not, I mean, just continue to preach to as far and wide as you can within your organization, not to click on any links. And I'm sure that your cybersecurity department does that too, but it doesn't hurt to have more than one voice saying that. This is a great time for there to be malware embedded into an email to say, click here to find a list of companies that were impacted by SVB or click here to find out how to obtain lost funds due to SVB or whatever that headline enticing headline is going to be in a social engineering email or a phishing email, just don't click the link. You can go out to the website that it says to go to. You can search for it in a search engine. You can put it in your browser, but do not click the link inside the email. Other things that you should have your company be aware of is asking themselves, is this a vendor that we even have? Who's calling? Who are they saying that they are? You know, is their current routing number with SVB? Is the person calling the contact that you already have on file for them? If not, call back the vendor and ask them directly. It is worth the extra steps because what these fraudsters are trying to do 
is get you to pay them instead of paying the vendor the next cycle. And that is going to cause havoc. And I am sure that your vendor is not going to say, oh, it's an innocent mistake. You don't have to pay us this month. You paid the fraudster instead. Yeah, it won't work that way. So really important to just double check with your AP department that they've thought about this, that they're doing due diligence. Uh, go back and listen to the episode with Robert Kerbeck and just how easy it has been for him during his career as a corporate spy to get employees of companies to open up to him or to do what he asked them to because they believed that he was who he said he was. It's so much easier than most people ever assume. And especially when things are chaotic and there's so much more volume of work to do, those types of things can slip through the cracks really easily. And then the last kind of fraud I was going to mention, and we see this quite often with any kind of business attack or business collapse or any storms or any kind of disasters, we'll see a lot of domains being opened up that are anything similar to what people may be searching for, which huh, ties right into my conversation with Laura when she went to Microsoft to say, hey, make sure that the only website that comes back when someone searches for eBay in your browser is our site and not all these other ones. So Frank on Fraud, one of our, I think probably all of our favorite fraud blogs, provided a really interesting look on the scammers that were kind of having a field day with Silicon Valley Bank customers. The first clue came when a massive race to secure SVB-related websites started happening with domain registrars as the bank's woes began. He shows a graph of this, and it's fascinating. There's actually a few spikes of SVB-related websites that started being registered in February. And actually, I wish I would have dug into this more, but I saw that there in February of this year, there was a C-level executive that was actually charged with a crime. So maybe that's why that was happening, or maybe there were other indicators about financial unrest in mid-February or so that made people want to register SBB domains. But then uh, starting March 5th, there were three, March 6th, there were five, March 7th, there were 10, and then uh, March 9th was really when all the news got out. There were nine, and then there, the next day there were 26, and then the following day there were 52 websites, all registered online that had to do with SVB or Silicon Valley. And that doesn't mean that not all of them are outright scams. Some are trying to more or less make an honest buck off of the crisis. But some of the ones that were registered were login-SVB or svbbailout.com or svbcertificates.com, svbclaim.com, svbcollapse.com, svbdeposits.com svbhelp.com and svblawsuit.com. So as you can imagine, if there are emails going out saying go to this website to enter in all your information to make a claim for a lawsuit coming up or to claim money for a bailout or to log into your SVB account, you just go to login-svb.com. That can be really scary. And that is exactly what fraudsters want, right? Is they're trying to take advantage of it in a different way than those other schemes. So in the case of login.bb.com, which was recently acquired, it was an obvious phishing website that was set up to steal login credentials from banking customers. The website now contains a warning and blocks customers from becoming victims. So that tells me it must have been reported to the domain host because it says warning this website may contain well or this website does contain well malware. Visiting this website may harm your computer. And then it says description, fraudulent sites that mimic legitimate sites to gather sensitive information such as usernames and passwords. So that's uh, really good that the domain registrar did that, right? Or 
It, it could have been a combination of the domain register or your browser, depending on settings. But other sites are trying to make what they consider an honest buck. Like there's a guy who's trying to sell the domain svbbailout.com for $10,000. So he registered it very quickly. Now he's trying to resell it to someone who uh, may want it for legitimate purposes. And this is how he's going to make $10,000. Um, a website called Security Snacks is now tracking all of the domains that could be considered risky. So if that's fascinating to you, I would go there. And then lastly, Frank points out, if you think the chaos is limited to scams, think again. Bloomberg reports that Russian media and crypto scammers are also seizing the opportunity. According to Bloomberg, the anti-disinformation firm Aletheia, A-L-E-T-H-E-A, which has uncovered apparent stock market gaming online as well as other social media manipulation, indicated that a range of accounts seized on uncertainty to promote their own agendas after word of the bank's demise started to spread. And cryptocurrency scammers used Twitter to direct visitors to what appeared to be scams that falsely promised to help generate virtual money, according to the finding. According to cybersecurity firm Cybel, C-Y-B-L-E, phishing sites are trying to steal cryptocurrency from victims. These phishing sites, especially svb-usdc.com and US, er, svb-usdc.net, which USDC is uh, stands for USD coin, which is a crypto coin. Um, it's considered a stable coin, but it's still crypto. So these phishing sites have set up bogus USDC reward program, claiming that Silicon Valley Bank is actively distributing USDC as part of the SVB USDC payback program to eligible USDC holders. So USD coin holders. They aim to steal cryptocurrency from the victim's account by offering them free USDC crypto. So there's a lot of scams that are being that have been perpetrated because of this. And uh, I think it's always important to know what they are to look be on the lookout for them now to share within your company, as well as again, to know what's possible when another big situation happens. Whenever something big happens in the market or happens internationally, there will be people who will try to profit off of it. I think that's been happening since the beginning of time, but the internet has made it so much more possible. As far as new news for SVB this week, First Citizens Bank is taking over SVB. So the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, took over SVB on March 10th after deposits depositors rushed to pull out all their money. But now the management of the bank has been transferred to First Citizens in exchange for $500 million of First Citizens stock to the FDIC. I mean, SVB was worth over $22 billion a month ago. So that is quite a clearance discount. It looks like First Citizens will be assuming their assets as well as their deposits and their loans and I definitely encourage you to look up more information if you're interested in all of that. So I know that First Citizens is hoping that everyone who still has an account with SVB stays with them and that they can make that transition as smoothly as possible. I know that First Citizens is also trying to retain the employees, those that can help them with the transition, as well as the management of operations. It looks like it's going to about double SVBs or double First Citizens size as far as deposits and amounts and everything else. So they will need more employees for sure. So with all of that, I hope that was a helpful and comprehensive recap on all that has happened in the last two weeks because of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. It's quite historic and 
I certainly don't mean to minimize it, but I think that we can always learn from these opportunities on how to prepare for the next one. All right. Well, I am looking forward to having a really good conversation with one of our favorite guests on Tuesday, and I will be back to speak with you then next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.